Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, where Jesus is dealing with some of the prevailing attitudes about his ministry that seem to find their way into the crowds and, of course, at the hands most often of of the religious elite. I suppose we all love the story of a prodigal. You know, somehow a a relational separation has occurred, some devastation that's painful between loved ones. And then in the end, some emotional reconciliation and a reunion that is just wonderful as the two sides come together. We're gripped by those things. It is, of course, emotionally gripping to any normal person when some devastating conflict destroys relationships within families or between dear, lifelong friends. And yet it's far more gripping when all those wounds get healed, as compassion is brought to a scenario, as forgiveness occurs, reaching out in love and restoration brings two parties together. This is marvelous for us. As I read the story earlier, of course, it is familiar to all of us if you've been through the New Testament parables at all or had any exposure to the teachings of Jesus. These are familiar words often spoken about even in pagan circles. And at first glance, we may assume some things about the story that if we're not careful, we could, we could miss some important truths God has embedded here. If you skim the surface, you, you could miss truths about God and our salvation that otherwise are intended in this parable to fill the soul and bring unique comfort. For example, you might assume that the overall point in this story is a call to all prodigals to come back. Many of us, of course, identify with that because we look at our lives in the past and we have a prodigal season that occurred in our lives when we needed to cry out to God hoping that he would be merciful. And so we immediately identify with that aspect that is here. Perhaps that's true of some of you right now. You're having those feelings even as I read the text earlier. And that is certainly part of the story, but it's not the main thrust here in this account. We might also assume that the lesson here is about the dangers of squandering what, you've, what you have and running toward the world. That's true. That's a warning that's here. The story does involve those issues, but it's not the main thrust. A more careful look at the story Jesus tells here keeps us from missing some of the more intriguing details that are intended to drive home the overall lesson that is here. For example, we may assume that the younger son, when he asked for the inheritance, was merely uh, bold, but not that unusual. That's not true. We might even assume that the father granting the request to the younger son was uncommon, but, but not necessarily a big deal. Well, that's far from the truth in this text, as we'll see. We may also assume when we read the story that the father's reaction to his son's return is simply the normal reaction of any parent who has a child run off into the world. And while some of that on the practical side of it is included in Jesus' story here, what is actually happening here between the father and these boys is far more profound than that. 
We may even, when we read the story, sympathize with the older brother whose faithfulness to the family and its moorings seems to be getting easily tossed aside. But there's much more in this story than even the tendency to see his side of it. In fact, it may be suggested that the older son is the ultimate prodigal because he seems at times in the story to have completely lost a right understanding of the grace of being in the family. Lenski, in fact, went so far as to call this parable the parable of the two lost sons. Both of them lost. Both of them a wrong perspective at one point in the narrative. Some have even assumed that the story highlights the tenderness of God's forgiving heart, and then when a sinner comes home, there is pardon and rejoicing. And certainly those truths are here as the first two parables in this chapter illustrate. It's a major part of the story, but it still falls far short of all that is here in this wonderful story Jesus tells. Behind the parable, if you remember, are the parables Jesus has already told, and we remember why he began to tell them. You remember in verse 2 of this chapter that the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling. They saw Jesus' ministry, and he was reaching out to sinners and people who were lost, and he would go have meals with them, and he would talk with them, and he would interact with them and give them the truth, always speaking the truth in the world, always open to needy sinners, things that the, the elite in Israel would never do. Look, when you think you're better than people and you committed that to some sort of religious ideology that says that's what God wants, when you use your law and your righteous standards given to you by God as sort of a privileged position, then you're going to begin to extrapolate that anyone else outside of that doesn't belong, isn't worthy, you're not interested in them. In fact, to be around them is to defile you. You're not an equal, you're a spiritual Elite, you're better than people. So to be around somebody of lesser constitution spiritually, of lesser privileged status by God, you're going to see them as a defiling influence. But Jesus was always with them, and yet he was a rabbi. He was, at least to some degree, on the outer fringes of the religious elite. Israel included him as a rabbi, let him teach in the synagogue, read scripture. He was part of the normal ebb and flow of rabbis that went from village to village teaching. He was in the rotation, which is why this bothered them so much that he would reach out to sinners. But Jesus was the full expression of the Father. He was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth were learned by Jesus Christ. He is the full explanation of what God is like. And Jesus was demonstrating that there's no way for the gospel to come to anyone if you see yourself on earth as, as an instrument for your own blessing, if you see yourself as a bucket rather than a funnel. And Jesus was illustrating that you always let truth do its work, but you are to give it. You are to be a funnel for the truth. That means you're going to have to not be of the world, but you will still be in the world. Ah, oh, but the Pharisees and scribes couldn't stand it. Oh, this man eats with sinners and receives them. He's open to them. Remember what we saw in those first two parables, those twin parables. God was always the seeker. Human beings don't seek God. God moves. God moves on our hearts. We saw that last time. He's the one that brings the circumstances 
and delights to do so because he's softening your heart and moving you toward a place where you will eventually, by his sovereign design, embrace the truth. From your perspective, you see God uh, moving in that way once you come to faith. Before then, you you don't know what's happening. You just know your heart is breaking. Your circumstances and consequences are devastating to your life. You need hope. You need help. Guilt needs to be taken away. Christ becomes the ultimate. This is all a work that God is doing because God is the seeker. And in these two parables that Jesus told at first, that is true. You'll even see an element of that in this great story before us in these, today and in this next couple of weeks. We'll take about three Sundays to finish the content here because it is so expansive And so Jesus began to illustrate God is the seeker and God is tender toward needy sinners. He's tender toward them. He went and sought the lost sheep. He considered the value of the lost coin so great, God moves toward the sinner. And rejoicing happens with genuine repentance, even of one. Even of one. This is really all about God. This is about salvation in God's mercy and kindness that we'd been singing about. And those same redemptive themes weave their way through this parable as well. But in this story, Jesus is making a far richer and more profound case for the heart of God. In answer to the grumbling of the religious elite, Jesus includes elements in this parable that are culturally and religiously shocking in order to set up the story in order to set up the contrast. We're just going behind the parable for a moment to think about it. The scribes of the Pharisees need to see the chasm, the utter chasm, the unbridgeable chasm between their redemptive worldview and that of a saving God whom they claim to represent. And so in the first half of the story, Jesus adds color and details so that the heart of God will stand in complete contrast to the way that Israel thought about spiritual things. And then in the second half of the story, he brings that contrast into a full-scale confrontation in the way that will make spiritual pride obvious. It will unmask the ugly and utterly blinding sin of spiritual pride. All the other elements are there. The the squandering of wealth, the danger of the world, all the other elements are there. A prodigal who leaves home and comes back, all the other elements are there. A wonderful expression of forgiveness and kindness. But there are color and details here that add elements that are so rich and profound. We dare not miss them. Moreover, um, while this text has been studied and studied and studied uh, through the centuries, it has often been noted that the way Jesus told the parable was memorable as, as just a, a story, a parable, a literary device. If you write it down, there are certain emphases that sort of go back and forth to make it easy to commit to memory. In the genius of Christ's teaching ability, he tells the first half of the story in a way that could be easily fixed in people's minds. In other words, there's movement to it and parallel concepts that make it easy to commit to memory. You say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, notice in verse 12, you have a lost son. 
The younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so the wealth was divided between them. You go down to verse 24, and this son of mine was dead, and he's come to life again. There's the end of the story. You have a lost son and a found son. Back to verse 13, you notice the resources. The younger son gathered everything together. He got all his resources. He went on the journey, and there he squandered his estate. Notice verse 23, the resources of the family and the estate are spent celebrating. They're spent celebrating. First they're squandered, then they're spent in that which is worthy. Again, it's a memorable parallel. Verse 14, Everything is gone. He'd spent everything. A severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. But you go over to verse 22. Everything is given back. The father said, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. This is the conclusion of what had been taken away. Verse 15 He's at his low point. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and sent him into his fields to feed the swine. In a parallel way, verse 21, he's expressing the humility of the situation. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm not worthy to be called your son. You have these parallel ideas of a low point in his life and you have a parallel idea of the humility that comes from it. Moving closer to the center of the story, verse 16, you have the outcast status. No one was giving him anything. And yet verse 20, near the end of the story, he's welcomed by his father as a family member. He's outcast, and in the parallel finish to the story, he's welcomed. And then you see in verse 17, where the softening happened. He came to his senses and he's beginning to soften. And yet the parallel in verses 18 and 19 where the actual repentance is expressed. The actual repentance is expressed. I'm not worthy. There's a resolving in his heart to go and make good on this change of mind. These are ways in which the story then becomes, in a parallel way, easy to commit to memory. A lost son, a found son, resources wasted, resources now spent in a worthy manner, everything being gone, then everything given back, everything in the son's heart brought to the lowest point because of his circumstances, and then it's expressed in humility. Then he's an outcast, but now he's a welcome family member. There was a softening and a resolving. You see this emphasis in this great, parable to keep this thing committed to memory so you don't forget the elements. Brilliant on the part of the mind of God in the inspiration of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Let's begin to take a look at the parable and we're going to go slow through it so you'll not be surprised that we'll get through verse 11, 12 and we'll just briefly look at verse 13 this morning. Because we we cannot miss what opens up in this story as Jesus tells it. What you have here as we go through the parable, first of all, is the son's audacious request. The son's audacious request. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. 
And so he divided his wealth between them. Now stop right there. We must understand what's going on here. First of all, this is not an idle request as though the son is merely asking for his inheritance early so he can be independent. You see that in our tradition, in our culture, and other sort of European cultures. Uh, a, a young person might ask for the inheritance. He might ask for his share, actually want to set up a nest egg, kind of have a, something to supply for uh, studies or education or, or building a business, those kinds of things. And you see traditionally that the way that inheritances are built and the way that they're treated in our culture, it would seem, if you read that into this text, that this is really just the, the same thing. It's the son asking for the inheritance early so he can be independent. But we must understand that behind this particular story and in the minds of the hearers, there are ancient customs that the listeners understood as a way of life. They were, they were traditions just like ours, but these were inflexible in some of the particulars. These were customs that were part of your existence. They were the way human relationships worked and were understood. And if they were violated, it had massive consequences. Doing something that was directly opposed to the normal way of life, to the way these ancient customs worked, it was something that risked massive offense. It would be something that would risk bringing disgrace upon a person's good name. Such behavior would be reprehensible to any decent person within the community. And in this particular scenario, as Jesus presents it, every Jew knew, they already knew that according to the law, the oldest son received two-thirds of the inheritance. The rest of the children had the inheritance divided among them. This man had two sons, so the youngest is going to receive a third of the inheritance. That would go to the younger son, Deuteronomy 21, 17. But what the younger son is asking is absolutely astonishing by custom. Why? Because he had no right to ask for resources while the father was still alive. Children did not have the right to their part of the estate until the death of the parents. In his classic study on parables, Kenneth Bailey tells of how a period of around 15, for a period of around 15 years, he went uh, up to those who, were, who had a Middle Eastern background or in places in the Middle East, and he asked the question about this parable. If this kind of thing happened, what would be the, the recourse? What would be the perspective? If the father's still living and he's healthy, what would happen if this kind of request was made? Bailey says that the answer was almost always emphatically the same, and the conversation ran as follows if he summarized all of his conversations over a period of 15 years of asking the question. This is how it went. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? The answer was always impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would beat him. Of course. Why? Because the request means that he wants his father to die. His father's not dead yet. He wants him gone. Now, you could think of probably a couple of exceptions, and this may have happened. In fact, on occasion, did happen even in Old Testament history. If a father's health was failing and death was imminent, he would then perhaps sign the share of the estate over the, so that arrangements could be made. In other words, it was really clear he was headed out. 
Or, in a few other cases, if the first wife of the father died and he had children by his first wife and he wanted to protect the estate from the the remarriage and anyone in the family of the remarriage side who might want to get their hands on the inheritance that goes to the, the children of his first marriage, he might sign some of the shares over in an official way just to protect that. But a father in good health always still controlled the estate, reserving the inheritance for when he passed. And furthermore, according to ancient customs, if a father did sign over the share of the estate to a son for these exceptional reasons, the son still could not do anything with the resources because they would still be under the patriarch's control. So until the patriarch died, even if there was an official signing, yes, that's my inheritance, those are my goods, You cannot do anything with them but either advance the estate, you can't use them independently, you can't liquidate them for your own ends, you cannot separate them from the estate. The father's patriarchal rule is what controls the estate. As long as he's healthy and alive, you would never think of such a thing. Notice what the son is asking for. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. He wants his share while the father's in good health. This is reprehensible. The father knows exactly in the story what this would mean, and the people hearing the parable know how shocking and culturally offensive this would be. Furthermore, he wants full control so that he can liquidate it into spendable cash, You say, how do you know that? Verse 13, not many days later, the son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, implying, of course, Gentile lands, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Look, you can't take your estate furniture. You can't take your land. You can't take uh, your livestock without at some point liquidating them if you're going to spend it and squander it in loose living. This son came to his dad and said, I want my portion. I wish you were gone already. I want my portion. And when you give it to me, I I want control over all of it. It's not going to be to advance the estate. I'm not even going to connect it to the estate. I'm not going to keep it until you die and and then bear any responsibility to the estate. I want it. I want to liquidate it. I want it for me and I'm leaving. This is sheer audacity. I know you're not dead yet, but either way, I want my inheritance now. Even in our culture, that is seen as reprehensible, a lack of love, ingratitude, arrogance. And I have no interest in staying connected with the family or the estate. I disown you as my parents. I disown your name. I disown the estate. I don't want any, I don't want to bear any connection. Very painful when that kind of thing happens. I'm gonna leave my roots and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna liquidate my part of the estate and do with it what I wanna do without reference to you or to our village or to our reputation as a family in the village. I'm not gonna do it in reference to my brother or anyone else. Usually when the parents died and the estate was divided up, there was still a connection between the siblings because of the name of the family, the good reputation of doing business in, in the commerce of the village, the, the 
plot of land to which it was connected. You were always connected to it. Wherever you went, whomever you married, even the grandchildren could come back and benefit from what good name and reputation had been built up. He doesn't want any of that. I want to do what I want to do, and I am disowning my family and my roots. Oh, and by the way, I'd like full control of my portion so that it's not tied to any obligation even in the future. Wow, that's painful. This is the place where the younger son had come to in his heart in the story. This is Jesus setting up this great scenario through which he's going to teach about the heart of God. What are the implications so far just from the request? Well, first of all, this is, by the way, how it always is with lost souls, with fallen human beings. In one sense, we could say that this isn't really about the prodigal son. This is about prodigal humanity. This is a story in the macro about a lost humanity given the privilege of being God's children, God's offspring as as they would even say it in pagan circles in Greece when Paul showed up. We were all God's offspring. Even they didn't deny that they had a creator. Even though they believed in many gods, they knew there was a creator God. They even put up an altar to him, to the unknown God. They understood that, and Paul said, that's right. In him we move and exist and have our being. Everyone is the offspring of the creator if you're a human being because you're made in his image. And this is how it always is with lost human beings. Never mind that we come into this amazing world without permission, without asking for it. We're created by God. You did not have anything to do with your soul coming into existence, did you? No. You're just there. And you begin to flower in your ability to understand that you exist. Furthermore, as a living soul, you are made in the image of God. That's right. And you didn't ask permission for that, and you didn't dictate how that would go? No. Furthermore, you live every day experiencing the common grace of life. It doesn't matter whether your circumstances are dire or fortunate. It doesn't matter. If we're old enough to understand the basics of life, we're already grasping that there is so much of life we never earn, we never ask for, we're just given it. People have gone before us upon whom shoulders we rest. That's right. That's right. We rest on the shoulders of the generations before us. We came into existence by whatever happened with them in the common grace of God. Parents or guardians took care of us to some degree, somewhere. Even if you were orphaned, you you didn't die and immediately go into punishment. If you're here today and your background was less than you would have hoped, you're still here. You're still moving and existing and having your being. Other people in some circle somewhere had compassion on you in the common grace of God. You experienced the the reign of God and the son of God to refresh you and to, to help you understand life. I don't do anything to make the sun rise. You don't do anything to make the sun rise, yet it comes up. 
We do nothing to make the earth's resources happen day in and day out and become available to us from which man makes food and energy and all kinds of the basic necessities of life. Uh, I don't do anything to bring that about, to bring about those resources. They just happen. We did absolutely nothing to bring ourselves into this world, and yet we have a soul. We have a soul that is that is bearing the image of God. So we reason about life, we engage in human relationships, and to, to the degree that we learn how to bless others, we enjoy the common grace of that and the joy of that and the fulfillment of that in those things. We enjoy that through no earning of it. You and I did absolutely nothing to create within ourselves a sense of moral right and wrong, and yet you have it. You have a sense of moral right and wrong so that you're not reduced to animals. People who violate their conscience and and go into those kinds of degraded human existences, they're not the end of the human perspective and spectrum, or they're not the beginning of the human spectrum. They're the end of it. They have sinned so much, hardened their hearts so much that they become animalistic, almost as if we would sometimes say inhuman. But if you aren't sinning to that degree, somehow God in his common grace has restrained you or in the special grace of the gospel, you're restrained against such things and deep within you, even without all that, you had a sense of moral right and wrong by which you have expressed compassion toward human beings who've been wronged and you have expressed emotional joy over good and wholesome things that bless our lives. You can see in the basic framework what is devastating to humanity and what is good for humanity, even if you don't know the specifics. None of that has been earned by you and I. It's all a part of existing as a human being, God's offspring. God has done all these things. He's given them to mankind richly to enjoy, and none of it is our doing. He just gives it to his creatures. Out of the storehouse of his love of his creation, especially his love for the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. And what does mankind do with all that free stuff? Well, by macro implication, here it is. We, we demand that the share of it be given to us without consequence or cost. Just give it to us. We think as human beings that we are free to reject the one who gave it freely, disown him, get away from him, independently live, go out and liquidate it in our own doing, whatever we want to do. We demand from our creator autonomous control over all of it, that we ought to be able to use it for our own self-pleasure and our own personal exaltation, denying him. And when we reach the end of all those decisions, whatever the outcome, there shouldn't be any consequences that should really devastate us. Oh, no. I should be able to sin with impunity. I should be able to do what I want with impunity. I should be able to take all that God gives and take all that God gives that I've never earned and it just comes to me in the common grace of God and just thumb my nose in his face. That's right. If you're a part of our study of Revelation, you're about to see some of those things happen in in the most shocking way that the human heart can do it. One commentator said, God gives 
without demure, that is to say, without muting it or slowing down the giving, even to the sinner, he gives life and health and faculties of mind and body, earthly wealth, a thousand advantages, and among all these blessings, ever some of these blessings that remind the sinner strongly of the heavenly Father and of the Father's house, that there is a God. Ecclesiastes, the wisest man in the world, Solomon said, God has so worked that we may grope for him and find him. He said eternity in our hearts and he so worked that all of these things are to draw us to him. Paul had to tell Israel, the Jews in the church in Rome, listen, you think you're specially privileged because you were given the law of God and chosen as a nation through which the channel of salvation blessing would come? You think that makes you special in and of yourself? God is impartial, and he said in Romans 2, verse 4, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads you to repentance. It should be the very existence of humanity that leads them to repentance should be the kindness of God's common grace that leads them to repentance. You know, we think of the average teenager, and, uh, and let's not get too smug here, adults. We were all teenagers, right? If somebody here thinks they weren't a teenager, you, you've already gotten too old to remember. What were we like? In those years as our adulthood was beginning to come to open and bloom as a flower of life. And what, was, what were we like when our desires became industrial strength? What were we like toward our parents? You remember when you were really little and your parents knew everything? And you just were amazed at how smart your parents were. And then you got to be around 13. And you begin to realize, ah, they make mistakes. And then you got to be around 14. And you thought, they make more mistakes than me. And then you got to be 15. And you got to think, my parents are pretty stupid. They don't understand much at all. They certainly don't understand me. They don't understand my friends. They just don't understand life. They don't understand how the way th things work. They're just, they don't know technology. I mean, come on, technology is everything. Then you got to be around 17, 18, and you're getting ready to leave home, and you're like, I'm going to go do what I want. I'm tired of this. I need to get out of here. I'm done with this. And what did your parents say? It appealed to you, hey, We've poured into you. I mean, don't you see that, that you're about to endanger your life? You're about to squander some principles of wisdom that we think will help you? Don't you see we did this out of love? It wasn't perfect. Maybe we did make a lot of mistakes. Maybe, maybe some for which we have yet to sort of admit, and, and we need to do that. But don't you see that... All the things we hemmed you in with, all the rules we gave you, all the ways we sort of saved up and worked hard to put a little aside for you, all the ways that in the common grace of everyday life you benefited. Don't, don't you see that you're about to 
go off into something that isn't your right. It's not your right. You don't get to disconnect from us. Ever. This is where you're rooted. You try to cut that off and you will forever have to every day cut off the memory of it. Too much time, too much formation, too many years. You can't do that. Yeah, it may be filled with bad things, bad memories. You're still connected. And even if you grew up with a terrible home and now you've given your heart to Christ and the gospel separates you from your upbringing, guess what that is? It's a, it's a gospel interest back into your family, is it not? Don't you think about that all the time? Gee, I wish my, my pagan, miserable parent would come to Christ. Don't, don't you wish that? Now that you're in Christ? Of course, because you see it for what it is. That's not how it goes, is it? You were a teen, you wanted to run. Just like this kid, I'm out of here. So you see the son's audacity, his audacious request. Look at, look at the father's astonishing response. So he divided his wealth between them. <laughs> it's as shocking and culturally offensive as the son's request. No way would a father do this under normal circumstances. No way. Look, he's healthy. You remember what the, the mindset was at the time? They just beat this kid. What, who do you think you are at, at this age asking while I'm healthy for all that I've earned to be given to you, whatever your portion is, and you're going to go liquidate it and take it and cut yourself off from us? For, to what end? What did we ever do to you except just build this up to hand it to you? Mistakes and all, it is yours. It's freely yours if you'll just serve and wait and not want to separate from the... I mean, this would be time for a rebuke. This would be time to gather the village against the sun. What are you doing? We've done stuff in this village for years as an estate. Our family reputation is at stake. What are you thinking? No, you'll get nothing. You'll get absolutely nothing. In fact, I'm considering writing you out of it until you get your head right. This is what culturally should have been expected to happen. But the father divided his wealth between them. He's healthy. He divides it between them. That is to say, he, he did the whole deal. The two-thirds to the older son... You're, you've not wanted to leave the estate. The son would never have controlled it. He would have just signed the official documents or whatever, and, and it would have been officially his, but he would have left it in the estate for the father to control until it was time for the father to die, and then he would take control of his portion. He certainly would have expected this, the younger son to beef up the estate and use it for the advantage of the estate to some degree and have some responsible relationship. The father made the transaction official the implication, of course, is, is that Jesus is setting up the scenario of what is shocking and offensive in order to demonstrate what he wants to demonstrate about the heart of God. Look, God is the Savior of sinners. God loves to save sinners. And so for all of the generations who shake their fist at God, God is still saving sinners. He's still 
wanting the gospel and its truth to splash on families and rebels, he is still reaching out towards sinners. This is not something that the Jews liked to talk about. Why? Because they did not believe anyone else was worthy. Well, here's the reality. Only God is worthy. Here's the Father representing by implication God and the heart of God. God is the only one worthy, should save no one. All those who receive an inheritance should be cut off because they're all lost. Even the older son is lost. Ultimately. But what does God do? He wants his love and kindness to be that which leads you to repentance. He wants the lessons of life to draw you to himself. I told you, when our kids were young, we used to pray, Lord, do whatever it takes to save them. Do you know what that would mean, perhaps? It would mean your kids cutting you off, going off into whatever they want, and trying to disown you as a family, only to find out that in the mercy of God, their circumstances bring them low like this young man. It is God who often allows those things to happen in order to save in order to express mercy. Why? Because if you didn't get into a trouble spot, you might not be brought low. It is a kindness for God to bring you low. Foolish for you to go. But a mercy of God to to watch over the devastating circumstances we fools bring into our lives. Absolutely. Jesus is setting up this shocking contrast. You Pharisees and scribes, You think you understand the heart of God? No, you don't understand the heart of God. Let me just shock you by a scenario. A young son asks for what is reprehensible, and the father lets it happen. By the way, this is not a treatise on free will. It's not a treatise on free will. We have no confusion about free will. Of course, we're we're agents of our will. Of course, we bear the moral consequences of our choices. This changes nothing in terms of God's sovereign work. Nothing. You say, how do you reconcile those two? I can't. Only God does. They're true, however. People make this parable a treatise on free will. See, God lets us do whatever we want to do. No, he doesn't. He's absolutely sovereign. How that works with us as moral agents being held morally responsible, we've talked about over and over again from this pulpit. Have I ever solved the problem for you? No. In fact, you email me more questions. Pastor, I don't know if I understand anymore. Well, neither do I. Join the club. They're both true, however. We don't shy away from that in Scripture. It's not a treatise to bolster your view of man's moral responsibility. Of course he's responsible. There are consequences to his behavior. It's true. But what do we know about God from this? Oh, God is merciful and patient. He withholds punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. Why? Because Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. David repeated in Psalm 103, verse 8, he's the father of mercies and God of all comfort. It is his kindness that leads you to repentance. Yes, it is. You were a prodigal? Well, how is it that you're sitting here? God's kindness. Even if you're still a prodigal and you've never repented, it's still God's kindness that you're here listening to his truth. 
Jesus is setting up the contrast because he is going to expose the folly of anyone who would think about the heart of God differently. Pharisees would have been shocked that the father did this and didn't beat the boy. No, God has a purpose even in even allowing us foolish decisions for a time. He does. It's never right. It's never good. He always hates it. He'll always judge it. He'll always chasten it. No sin will go unpunished. It's always a consequence. But even in that, as we will see the heart of God unfold in this parable, God is using it as a kindness to bring us to himself, to bring sinners to himself. The Pharisees would have never understood such things. You came to God by your own effort. You came to God by your own righteousness. God didn't have to be as patient with a Pharisee because a Pharisee is a pretty decent dude. No. They didn't understand. We're all prodigals. We all take what God gives and we squander it until he brings enough sorrowful circumstances in our life to wake us up. When did God wake you up? So much more ahead. This guy goes and squanders his living, ends up in consequences, so much more ahead. But what the father does is absolutely remarkable. This is the first of the most shocking things that the father does to demonstrate the heart of God. But that'll be for next time. Let's pray.